This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the it's world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So imagine being able to go into the future just to you know, get a glimpse of what things might be like. And say you walk into a home. It's a small apartment, really small. And at first, things feel pretty familiar. There's a radio show going on. There are newspapers, there's a sofa, there's some lights. And then you start listening to the radio show and you start hearing about, you know, shipping lanes being closed because of Arctic um, icebergs melting. You know, you start to understand that this is sounding slightly unfamiliar. And then you walk through what feels like a sort of a maze corridor. But this has basically got the sound of a drone, like buzzing sound. And um, like musical uh, sound of water drops. And this is basically an elaborate contraption of fogponic machines, which are basically um, metal stacks, and they use fog, so not even soil or water, to grow food. And you walk out, you see the cityscape outside, you see a bit of unrest, you see some protests. And uh, the idea that we want to give people is that you walk in feeling like everything's fine, then you go through a moment of feeling real fear and anxiety as you begin to see the evidences that suggest that the world has gone completely um, crazy. But actually, it hasn't, at least not yet anyway, because that whole thing, it's a simulation of the future in the present, and it's run by Anab Jain. So my name is Anab Jain, and I am a designer and co-founder of a London-based design studio, Superflux. So her job is basically to scare you, to game out what the future might look like. A future with climate change and social inequality, government surveillance, and even food scarcity. And Anab thinks that experiencing those futures can shake us out of our complacency. So we create concrete prototypes, films, media pieces, um, artifacts that actually give people a very emotional, concrete, experiential perspective of that future. So you could actually touch a part of that future. It means to think about possibilities. It means to be able to think about how and in what way might different potential futures unfold? And what might it mean to make journeys into those futures? What might we see? What might we hear? What might we breathe even? And the idea being that the embracing that sort of uncertainty that comes with going into different futures, knowing that you might come across things you don't like or completely disagree with, means that you come back more aware of your present and more determined to make a difference. The stuff we've mostly thought of as science fiction is increasingly becoming a reality. Equal parts inspiring and despairing. From data collection to gene editing to artificial intelligence, all these things are getting better and faster and cheaper. And there's no going back. But if we wanted to, could we change the trajectory? Well, on the show today, future consequences, ideas about the actions we take right now, and the impact they'll have tomorrow and beyond. For Anab Jain, the story we're writing for ourselves today, unless we're careful, might not have a happy ending. I kind of recently have been um, seeing a lot more messy, not darker futures. Mm. We are doing a lot of work around climate change. We're looking at food insecurities and what it would mean to live in a Western world where we are no longer having 
food on the go, buy one, get one free from supermarkets, where we have moved into a society which is a post-abundance society. And in that particular future, what we are trying to do is figure out what it would mean to find the tools and the techniques to be able to not just combat that, but to kind of live quite happily in that future. And so what we want to do now is we're thinking about visiting futures that can bring back hope or that can bring back tools to cope with that hmm. dystopia. Here's Anab Jain on the TED stage. Earlier this year, the government of the United Arab Emirates invited us to help them shape their country's energy strategy all the way up to 2050. Based on the government's econometric data, we created this large city model and visualized many possible futures on it. So as I was excitably taking a group of government officials and members of energy companies through one sustainable future on our model, one of the participants told me, I cannot imagine that in the future people will stop driving cars and start using public transport. And then he said, there's no way I can tell my own son to stop driving his car. But we were prepared for this reaction. Working with scientists in a chemistry lab in my home city in India, we had created approximate samples of what the air would be like in 2030 if our behavior stays the same. And so I walked the group over to this object that emits vapor from those air samples. Just one whiff of the noxious polluted air from 2030 brought home the point that no amount of data can. This is not the future you would want your children to inherit. The next day, the government made a big announcement. They would be investing billions of dollars in renewables. Wait, they actually could breathe in what the air would be yeah. like if they did yeah. nothing? Yeah. Wow. And so that was pretty dirty air, presumably. To be honest, it was almost too dangerous. Hmm. Wow. And so, <laughs> so you have these people breathing in this air, and they're saying, we do not want this. I think it played a part. I think there are many factors. Of course, there's a lot of data to suggest that we should not be polluting our planet. But quite often, well, most of the times, we don't seem to be doing anything about it. Yeah, because there's this disconnect, right, between the things we know we have to do, like why many people don't exercise, they don't eat well, and the fact that we don't do them. Yeah, I think there are a few things at play. One is the idea that the more data we have around us, I think we have cultivated a kind of a practice of data spectatorship. So we look at the data and we look at beautiful visualizations and we look at graphs and we look at metrics. We just become spectators. We don't kind of understand the deeper stories that need to be told around that data that actually connect directly to our lives. So there's a disconnect there. For a recent project called Drone Avery, we were interested in exploring what it would mean to live with drones in our cities. Let's imagine we are living in a city with drones like the Night Watchman. It patrols the streets, often spotted in the evenings and at nights. Now, what if you could see the world through its eyes? See how it constantly logs every resident of our neighborhood logging the kids who play football in the no-ball game area and marking them as statutory nuisances. Its glaring presence is so overpowering, I can't help but stare at it. But it feels like each time I look at it, it knows a little more about me. Like it keeps flashing all these Brian Air adverts at me, as if it knows about the holiday I'm planning. I'm not sure if, if I find this mildly entertaining or just entirely invasive. Whilst drones like Night Watchman in these particular forms are not real yet, most elements of our drone future are, in fact, very real today. For instance, facial recognition systems are everywhere, in our phones, even in our thermostats, and in cameras around our cities, keeping a record of everything we do, whether it's an advertisement we glanced at or a protest we attended. These things are here, and we often don't understand how they work and what their consequences could be. So 
just a quick like a disclaimer before I go further is that this is a potential right, future. A scenario, this is not right. a prediction. We are exploring one possibility. I imagine that alongside this kind of breath of technological acceleration, we have big challenges around climate change and social inequality. So if you sort of put these kind of big challenges together, which they will collide and intersect with each other, you'll probably find that actually you have a lot more weather uncertainty, you have food shortages. So you might be walking with your smartphone, but I don't know how much connectivity you'll have. People will be stealing food of each other. You know, there'll be those kind of challenges. Yeah, I mean, so so let's, let's talk about something that's very real now, especially in Western countries, which is income inequality. There are just huge and growing gaps between wealthy people and people who are struggling just to feed their families. I mean, how do you gain that out in the future? What does that future look like? Terrifying. I think that is actually one of the biggest challenges. I think social inequality. And in fact, I hate to use that term as well because I don't think it's the right way of describing the situation we found ourselves in. Because of climate change, I think those who have the least power to affect the future are going to be the worst affected. And you're seeing that. You're seeing some of the biggest swaths of people being forced to emigrate and migrate and war-torn regions. A lot of the background around those conflicts is climate change related. So we're going to find that those who have the power and those who have the capacity to stay out of these conflicts will be the most powerful, but increasingly majority of the people will be swept into this conflict around social inequality. You know, I, I think about all these consequences and um, of the decisions and actions that we take today. And um, I have to admit, I, I feel somewhat disempowered. And I, and I have a platform. I mean, I have this show that, and you yeah. have a platform. And, and yeah. yet I feel powerless. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like there's almost a paralysis. Like you think about it, you know these things are happening and you think, I, d- I don't know what to do. This is, a, you know, when I was saying this is totally, I feel that all the time. And I think, you know, the real challenge here is to understand where power lies. Because once we begin to understand that, we can understand it in relation to our powerlessness. And that actually, every individual does have some power. We do have the power of our voice, of our work, of, of the decisions we make, of the things we choose not to buy. I think it's just because those small actions have not been quantified to mean anything. But they do. Nab Jane is a designer and co-founder of the London-based design studio Superflux. You can see her full talk at TED.com. In a moment, don't freak out just yet, because we'll hear how leaps in technology could mean a better life for all of us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Lagunitas Brewing Company, which began on a kitchen stove in Northern California in 1993. From actually getting their beer into bottles and onto the streets, Lagunitas always looks to the future, whether it's supporting local communities by turning beer into money for the cause, or simply fueling stories and songs with IPA and other fine ales. Wherever you go, beer speaks, people mumble. Mumble along at lagunitas.com. Thanks also to Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals for free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash radiohour. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the things we do in the present that could have troubling consequences in the future. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look forward to the future. I mean, there are reasons to be hopeful. When you think about the future uh, of technology, 
are you super excited about what it's going to be like in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years? I'm wildly excited. This is Juan Enriquez. He's a futurist and a writer. You know, there's just such a long list of stuff. We're going to generate as much data, photographs, books, as has been generated in human history in the next two years. And we're just doing this on an exponential level. So our understanding of life, our ability to modify life, our ability to find life on other planets, our ability to redesign genetic code, to increase overall intelligence. There's just so many things going on. It's an extraordinary time to be alive. And Juan is especially excited about something that could fundamentally change life itself. It's called life code. What we're doing is we're learning how life is written. So first, biology was observational. We watched what happened. And then we realized that life was written in DNA and four base pairs. And then we realized we could copy that DNA by cloning animals, by cloning bacteria, by cloning plants. And now we're at a stage where we can use ways of inserting or deleting or altering genes in such a way that we can edit life code. And that's going to be the biggest single driver of wealth creation, of power, of change in the world for the next foreseeable decades. I mean, what you're talking about and what lots of people in this field are talking about is basically taking control over our our evolution. I think that's exactly right. And we're at this break point where we're playing on a six-dimensional chessboard because you can change the basic DNA code. You can change the way it's executed through proteins. You can change it by changing the environment. There's just a whole lot of places where we can alter how this life code is written, how this life code is edited, how this life code is executed. So you can actually alter species very quickly um, through selective pressures. And then we've also reached a very strange break point because for four billion years, what lived and died on this planet was determined by natural selection and random mutation. And now what we've done is we've created this parallel evolutionary superhighway that operates on a completely different logic. And we call it unnatural selection. And I'll give you an example. A little chihuahua, like the chihuahuas you see walking down Fifth Avenue in those fancy handbags. That's created by human beings and bred basically from wolves. But if you take that little chihuahua and you place it in the middle of the African jungle, you're going to see natural selection happen very quickly because that is an animal adapted to human apartment buildings, not to nature. Yeah. And the same thing happens with a cornfield, and the same thing happens with a soybean field. There's the least natural places on Earth. They would not be there absent human intervention. So we're determining, to a great extent, about 50% of what lives and dies on Earth. And that, that is a true superpower. I mean, a superpower is not leaping over tall buildings in single bounds. A superpower is not being able to light something on fire if you look at it. A superpower is determining what that life form does and how that life form executes. And and that's what we're learning how to do. And we have to, on the one hand, be awed by it, take responsibility for it, understand the ethical, moral implications of that. But above all, we have to become literate in this because this is going to be the language that drives the world economy and the world political system. And right now, we're just in the beginning stages of what life code can do. Here's Juan Enriquez on the TED stage. So this life code stuff turns out to be this incredibly powerful way of changing viruses, of changing plants, of changing animals, perhaps even of evolving ourselves. Well, some of these treatments actually end up changing your blood type or they'll put male cells in a female body, or vice versa. Which sounds absolutely horrible until you realize the reason you're doing that is you're substituting bone marrow during cancer treatments. So by taking somebody else's bone marrow, you may be changing some fundamental aspects of yourself, but you're also saving your life. And as you're thinking about this stuff, here's something that happened 20 years ago. So this is Emma Ott. She's a recent college admittee. She's studying accounting. She played two varsity sports. She graduated as a valedictorian. And that's not particularly extraordinary, except that she's the first human being born to three parents. Why? Because she had a deadly mitochondrial disease that she might have inherited. 
So when you swap out a third person's DNA and you put it in there, you save the lives of people. But you also are doing germline engineering, which means her kids will be, if she has kids, will be saved and won't go through this. And her kids will be saved and their grandchildren will be saved and this passes on. So, okay, so the story of Emma Ott is pretty awesome and inspiring. And of course, I think everybody, almost everybody would agree, like, this is the right thing. Like, we should be, we should be doing this kind of stuff, right? And, uh... But the problem is that it opens up a whole Pandora's box of things we can do. And then and then it becomes a philosophical question of where do we start? Where do we stop? So the, imagine for one second that you had a time machine and somehow you could bring grandpa and grandma back age 18 and sit them in your living room and have a birds and the bees talk with them. Grandpa, grandma, do you know that you can now have sex and not have a baby? This is getting weird, by the way, just thinking about my grandparents. But keep going, keep going. Yeah. So for all of human history, normally sex equaled baby. Right. right? And yeah. now all yeah. of a sudden you're right. telling them, no, you've separated sex from conception. And then you continue the talk and you say, and oh, by the way, because I'm doing my graduate degree, maybe what I want to do is to do this in vitro later. And then what you've done is you've separated sex from being with somebody. So all of a sudden you don't have to physically be with somebody to conceive a child. And their eyes would get very big at that point. Yeah, they'd freak out. They'd totally freak out. And then the third thing you can tell them is, oh, by the way, because you can freeze this, and because you can freeze fertilized eggs, and because you can have a surrogate mother, with today's technology, you could have an identical twin born every 50 years. And at that point, they'd wonder what you were drinking, and they'd storm off. But see, we take that stuff for granted. Right. We think that's just kind of stuff you talk about over a latte as an option. And I think some of the things you're talking about are going to scare us to death, but are going to be so normal and natural to our grandkids that they're kind of go, Grandpa, Grandma, why didn't you have these choices? Why would you allow kids to be born with stuff that would give them cancer? Hmm. Why didn't you have double the lifespan like we have? And that'll just be a menu of stuff that to them we'll see, you know, like, of course you can do that. And, and to us, it would be like, you can what? That makes people nervous. So 20 years ago, the various authorities said, why don't we study this for a while? And there are risks to doing stuff and the risks to not doing stuff because there were a couple of dozen people saved by this technology. And then we've been thinking about it for the next 20 years. So as we think about it, as we take the time to say, hey, maybe we should have longer studies. Maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that. There are consequences to acting and there are consequences to not acting. Like curing deadly diseases, which by the way is completely unnatural, right? It is normal and natural for humans to be felled by massive epidemics of polio, of smallpox, of tuberculosis. When we put vaccines into people, we are putting unnatural things into their body because we think the benefit way outweighs the risk. Because we've built unnatural plants, unnatural animals, we can feed about seven billion people. We can do things like create new life forms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the problem, the problem is that it allows humans to pick and choose. So. One person may say, listen, you know, I don't think that people with red hair deserve to live. And we should just eliminate red-haired humans from the planet. And, uh, and I know how to do it. I mean, I, I'm not saying that that will happen. But if the technology is available, it, it, there's a danger that something like that could happen. Look, there is always a danger to acting. And some European countries have put what they call a precautionary principle in place. And the precautionary principle says you can adopt and deploy any technology you want as long as you can show me it will not hurt human beings. And that makes all the sense in the world at a 30,000-foot level. But when you bring that down and you think, okay, could you actually have an electric outlet in a house? Could you have a staircase? Could you use steel? There's a risk-reward ratio to any powerful technology. And yes, there's stuff that can be scary in the stuff. There's also stuff that can cure some really nasty diseases. There's also stuff that can allow us to live much longer, much healthier lives. 
So you have to measure the upside and the downside and not just be scared of it and not just be complacent about it. Yeah, okay, f fair enough. I mean, look, I'm an optimistic curmudgeon, so I despair of some of the current politics on all sides. I despair about the ability to concentrate wealth in a hundred hands, literally a hundred families. I, I worry about some of the weapons we're creating. But overall, I think we're in a period where we can make an enormous chunk of lives in this world far, far better off. Juan Enriquez, he's a futurist, venture capitalist, and co-author of the book Evolving Ourselves, How Unnatural Selection and Non-Random Mutation Are Changing Life on Earth. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. Okay, so Juan Enriquez is saying that this is all super promising and exciting, and, and we could actually eliminate disease, and we could create, right. you know, future humans who are immune from these horrible afflictions that haunt us, and, and that that all that all seems pretty awesome, right? Well, you know, I've kind of taken it upon myself to try to get out there in the public and talk about how this technology could go wrong. This is Paul Knopfler. I'm a professor at UC Davis School of Medicine. Paul spends a lot of time researching new gene editing tools like CRISPR, which basically allows you to cut and paste genes together, and how that technology might have unintended consequences down the road. Genetics is this interwoven, complex universe unto itself where you touch in one area, but you touch on there and there can be reverberations, you can change other genes. And, and you can have consequences you might not like. And so every time you make one change, you might end up with a host of sort of associated sort of satellite changes as well. Paul described what the future of gene editing could look like when he gave his talk on the TED stage. Let's pretend it's the year 2030, and you're a parent. You have your daughter, Marion, next to you. And in 2030, she is what we call a natural because she has no genetic modifications. And because you and your partner consciously made that decision, many in your social circle, they kind of look down on you. They think you're like a Luddite or a technophobe. Marion's best friend, Jenna, who lives right next door, is a very different story. She was born a genetically modified designer baby with numerous upgrades. The scientist that Jenna's parents hired to do this for several million dollars introduced CRISPR into a whole panel of human embryos. And then they used genetic testing, and they predicted that that little tiny embryo, Jenna's embryo, would be the best of the bunch. And now, Jenna is an actual, real person. She's sitting on the carpet in your living room, playing with your daughter, Marion. And your families have known each other for years now. And it's become very clear to you that Jenna is extraordinary. She's incredibly intelligent. If you're honest with yourself, she's smarter than you. And she's five years old. She's beautiful, tall, athletic. And the list goes on and on. And in fact, there's a whole new generation of these GM kids like Jenna. And so far, it looks like they're healthier than their parents' generation, than your generation. They're immune to a host of health conditions, including HIV, AIDS, and genetic diseases. It all sounds so great. But you can't help but have this sort of unsettling feeling, a gut feeling, that there's something just not quite right about Jenna. And you've had the same feeling about other GM kids that you've met. You were also reading in the newspaper earlier this week that a study of these children who were born as designer babies indicates they may have some issues like increased aggressiveness and narcissism. But more immediately on your mind is some news that you just got from Jenna's family. She's so smart, she's now going to be going to a special school, a different school than your daughter, Marion. And this has kind of thrown your family into an array, a disarray. Marion's been crying, and last night, 
when you took her to bed to kiss her goodnight, she said, Daddy, will Jenna even be my friend anymore? This sounds totally freaky. I mean, you you are saying that within 15 years, people could be designing their own babies, like like free of genetic diseases and, and, and even choosing traits, you know, which, which in some ways sounds pretty good. But, but, but as you point out, it could create enormous problems as well. Yeah, you know, it can seem very positive. It can seem like a goal we should go for. Yeah. You know, who, who can argue with someone being healthier and, you know, perhaps having certain traits that are broadly perceived as, quote unquote, better. But along with those things that society might perceive as desirable traits, you know, perhaps they would be more aggressive or perhaps they might develop some kind of unexpected disease later in life. And so at those kinds of levels, we can't always anticipate what the consequences will be. There's also a concern if you imagine that kind of future in 15, 20, 25 years, there could be these sort of genetic class distinctions, right? There'll be people who could afford to genetically modify their children, and then there will be those of us who couldn't. And and I think there could be substantial negative consequences from that in terms of social justice and instability in society. And so as much as that, you know, hypothetical genetically modified designer baby Jenna of the future might seem like a wonderful thing to potentially pursue technologically, for me, it seems very risky. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be great if we could eliminate diseases like, you know, like like Huntington's disease or, or cystic fibrosis, which are just horrible diseases. But, you know, why why would we stop there? I mean, you could imagine people would say, well, let's deal with Down syndrome. Let's deal with cleft lips. Let's deal with all kinds of, you know, debilitating deformities or whatever. It's very tricky because, again, you can find yourself kind of slipping towards changing traits too. Like you might try to prevent a neurological disease that's horrible, but at the same time you've, hey, you know, successfully prevented that. That's fantastic. What if you're sort of in this weird, unexpected outcome where that kid is super smart as well, way smarter than anybody else? And then, you know, what if someone else wants to try to repeat your experiment not to get rid of that neurological condition, but to make smarter people? And and one thing I've learned in science over the years is oftentimes these experiments we do, they don't turn out quite the way we think they're going to. In just a minute... Paul Knopfler's ideas on how we should be regulating this new technology and what it can mean for the future if we don't. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Google Cloud Platform. If you're looking to move to the cloud, Google Cloud Platform provides security that scales with your business and keeps your data safe, no matter how fast you grow. Built on more than 15 years of experience, Google Cloud Platform is focused on keeping customers, applications, and data safe, taking advantage of the same security model that Google's done with Gmail, Search, and other apps. To learn more about Google Cloud Platform, visit cloud.google.com. Thanks also to Captera, a software comparison site. Captera believes it's time to power up your productivity with the right software for your business. On captera.com, you can find over 400 categories of business software to choose from with thousands of user reviews. And using Captera is absolutely free. Join the millions of people who use Captera every month. Visit Captera, that's C A P T E R R A. Dot com slash radio hour today. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, future consequences. How the things we decide to do today will shape everything about tomorrow. And when it comes to things like gene editing, biologist Paul Knopfler thinks the best step forward might be to take a step back. And in fact, I've been in favor of a moratorium on the use of CRISPR in reproduction, you know, in actual human reproduction. So just to be 100% clear, 
I don't want to have any kind of negative impact on CRISPR research in the lab at all. And CRISPR use in things like gene therapy, which is not heritable, I'm totally in favor of that. But I do think we should say, you know, if we're going to be using CRISPR in human embryos with the goal of making permanent genetic changes that will be passed on to future generations, right now we should not go down that path. But even if we did all agree on a moratorium, you know, is that only going to be in one country? What happens in other countries? And and it's very hard to prevent something from happening when you have a very exciting technology. Yeah. And it has such power. We know from Darwin, you know, if we go back two centuries, that evolution and genetics profoundly have impacted humanity, who we are today. And some think there's like a social Darwinism at work in our world and maybe even a eugenics as well. Imagine those trends, those forces, with a booster rocket of this CRISPR technology that is so powerful and so ubiquitous. And in fact, we can just go back one century to the last century to see the power that eugenics can have. So today, I see a new eugenics kind of bubbling to the surface. It's supposed to be a kinder, gentler, positive eugenics, different than all that past stuff. But I think even though it's focused on trying to improve people, it could have negative consequences. And it really worries me that some of the top proponents of this new eugenics, they think CRISPR is the ticket to make it happen. I'm not a religious person, um, but I'm really troubled by the idea that we we take over a natural process that 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 nature essentially stops in humans and humans we become god you know i i have thought about that too and i feel like as much as you know the human race is amazing right and we have these amazing brains and and we've come so far technologically speaking sometimes our technologies race ahead of our ability to really place them in a wise context and know what to do or not to do with the technologies. And, you know, we end up with uh, atomic weapons and things like that. And I don't think it's it's too outlandish to say using CRISPRs in humans in a heritable manner would be akin to kind of like playing God. I mean, no one's going to just stop researching this. No one's going to stop looking at the possibility of it because it is inspiring. It is full of wonder. The idea that you could stumble upon or come upon the technology to do this, I mean, I understand why somebody would want to pursue that because it's it's wondrous. Yeah, you know, it may be that it's not, you know, yes or no. It may be just that we are, as a collective society, going to be going down that path, whether some of us like it or not. And in fact, I don't think that we can really just say stop. You know, I think people will use this And so it just means we need to be having more of these kinds of conversations like we're having right now, trying to anticipate what are going to be the consequences. And we should be trying to talk about both the exciting sides of it and also the sides that maybe have a darker edge to them as well. Biologist Paul Knopfler. He also writes a science blog called The Niche. You can hear his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, future consequences. How our decisions about science and technology today will impact our future tomorrow. And in a lot of ways, one aspect of the future has already been imagined for us. Three billion human lives ended on August 29th, 1997. I mean, this has been part of our culture for decades. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. Okay, so you might recognize this scene. It's Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 describing how artificial intelligence sparked a nuclear attack and then waged war against the surviving humans, which is something that should terrify all of us, right? Yeah, and and what especially worries me about artificial intelligence is that I'm freaked out by my inability to 
marshal the appropriate emotional response. Which should be what? Oh, I, I think potentially it's it's the most worrisome future possible because we're talking about the most powerful possible technology. This is Sam Harris. I am a writer and podcaster and neuroscientist and also armchair philosopher. And Sam says our inability to react to this future with urgency poses a big problem. The quote from Stuart Russell, the computer scientist at Berkeley, is, imagine we received a communication from an alien civilization which said, people of Earth, we will arrive on your planet in 50 years. Get ready. Right now, just just imagine that. Now, that is the circumstance we are in, fundamentally. We're talking about a seeming inevitability that we will produce superhuman intelligence, intelligence which... Once it becomes superhuman, then it becomes the engine of its own improvements. Then there's really kind of just a a runaway effect where we can't even imagine how much better it could be than we are. Sam picks up this idea from the TED stage. At a certain point, we will build machines that are smarter than we are. And once we have machines that are smarter than we are, they will begin to improve themselves. And then we risk what the mathematician I.J. Good called an intelligence explosion, that the process could get away from us. Now, this is often caricatured as a fear that armies of malicious robots will attack us. But that isn't the most likely scenario. It's not that our machines will become spontaneously malevolent. The concern is really that we will build machines that are so much more competent than we are that the slightest divergence between their goals and our own could destroy us. Just think about how we relate to ants. Okay, we don't hate them. We don't go out of our way to harm them. In fact, sometimes we take pains not to harm them. We just we step over them on the sidewalk. But whenever their presence seriously conflicts with one of our goals, we annihilate them without a qualm. Okay, the concern is that we will one day build machines that could treat us with similar disregard. It's crucial to realize that, that, that the rate of progress doesn't matter. It does, any progress is enough to get us into the end zone. We don't need Moore's Law to continue. We don't, we don't need exponential progress. We just need to keep going. So we will do this if we can. The train is already out of the station, and there's no brake to pull. You believe that, that it is inevitable that at some point we humans will create the technology to more or less replicate humans. Yeah, I think that the moment you recognize that intelligence is platform independent, then you just have to give up this idea that there's any barrier to machines becoming superhuman. And when they do become superhuman in their abilities to design experiments, to engineer new machines, then they will be the best at doing that. But we're not there, right? I mean, mean, at this point, there are a lot of things humans do that machines and robots just can't do. Yeah, I think this notion of a goal of human-level intelligence is quite misleading. We're living with what's called narrow AI, which is superhuman in its area of application, but is not at all general and therefore isn't nearly as good as the human mind is now. Or the best chess player in the world is a computer, and now the best Go player in the world is a computer. Um, The best facial recognition system is a computer. And yet none of these systems is good at anything else, really. So I think the goal is to have general intelligence, which allows for kind of flexible learning across many different uh, tasks and in many different environments, But once we have something that's truly generalizable and and seamless, it it won't be human level. It will become superhuman, and it won't be human level unless we consciously degrade its its capacity to be human level. And we we would never do that. Right, right, because that's just not a a normal human response. Because when, when most people hear about AI or talk about it, it's, it's with this incredible optimism. I mean, this technology will enable us to do things we can't do. We're going to be able to crunch numbers in, in ways that we can't right now and, and solve diseases through data. And machines are going to be able to do tasks and do them much faster. So 
I mean, there is a sense of wonder about the future of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think that's appropriate because intelligence is our most important resource and we want more of it. Just think about it in terms of every problem you see in the world has some intelligent solution if a solution is compatible with the laws of physics, right? And, and, and so it's just we want to figure out these solutions and we want to improve human life. But yeah, we are racing toward something we don't understand. And the scary thing is that many people thinking about the potential upside here don't seem uh, too aware of the ways in which it could go wrong and, in fact, are just deny that there's really anything worth thinking about here. Imagine we just built a super-intelligent AI, right, that was no smarter than your average team of researchers at Stanford or at MIT. Well, electronic circuits function about a million times faster than biochemical ones. Okay, so this machine should think about a million times faster than the minds that built it. So you set it running for a week, and it will perform 20,000 years of human-level intellectual work, week after week after week. How could we even understand, much less constrain, a mind making this sort of progress? The other thing that's worrying, frankly, is that imagine the best-case scenario. So imagine we, we hit upon a design of superintelligent AI that has no safety concerns. We have the perfect design the first time around. It's as though we've been handed an oracle that behaves exactly as intended. Well, this machine would be the perfect labor-saving device. It can design the machine, that can build the machine, that can do any physical work powered by sunlight, more or less for the cost of raw materials. Okay, so, so we're talking about the end of human drudgery. We're also talking about the end of most intellectual work. And what would the Russians or the Chinese do if they heard that some company in Silicon Valley was about to deploy a superintelligent AI? This machine would be capable of waging war, right, whether terrestrial or cyber, with unprecedented power. This is a winner-take-all scenario. To be six months ahead of the competition here is to be 500,000 years ahead at a minimum. Okay, so it seems that even mere rumors of this kind of breakthrough could cause our species to go berserk. I mean, it seems like one big consequence of not taking this seriously, you know, is that we will essentially be giving up control over our own destiny as a species. Yeah, well, potentially. And that, so that obviously there are the people who say, well, we would never do that. We would never give up control, right? Right. Uh, but... There's just no guarantee of that, particularly when you imagine the power that awaits anyone, you know, any government, any research team, any individual, ultimately, who creates a system that is superhuman in its abilities and general in its abilities. Well, then no one can really compete with you in anything. Uh, it's, it's really hard to picture what the 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 intellectual and and scientific inequality that that suddenly could open up i mean based on on you know the the pace of this technology i mean how much longer will humans be the sort of the dominant species on planet earth well you know i i really i have no idea i just think that the pace of change suggests that the next 50 years could represent an astonishing epoch of change just look at the the pace of change in our own lives in the last 20 years. You know, most of us have have only been on the internet for about 20 years. 20 years ago, you had people saying the internet is going to be a bust, right? I mean, there's no there's no there there, right? No <laughs> right. one's going to use right. this thing, right? Yes. And look at the world we're in now, and this is a comparatively old kind of breakthrough. I mean, we're not nothing of, of the last 20 years has been transformed fundamentally by artificial intelligence. So I think the next 50 years could change everything. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a solution to this problem, apart from recommending that more of us think about it. I think we need something like a Manhattan Project on the topic of artificial intelligence. Not to build it, because I think we'll inevitably do that, but to, to understand how to avoid an arms race 
and to build it in a way that is aligned with our interests. When you're talking about superintelligent AI that can make changes to itself, it seems that we only have one chance to get the initial conditions right. And even then, we will need to absorb the economic and political consequences of getting them right. But the moment we admit that information processing is the source of intelligence, that some appropriate computational system is what the basis of intelligence is, and we admit that we will improve these systems continuously, then we have to admit that we're in the process of building some sort of god. Now would be a good time to make sure it's a god we can live with. Thank you very much. Writer, neuroscientist, and philosopher Sam Harris. He's also the host of the podcast Waking Up with Sam Harris. You should definitely check that out. And you can watch all of Sam's talks at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode, Future Consequences, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, and Rund Abdel Fattah, with help from Daniel Shukin and Tony Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Please also subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write us directly. It's TedRadioHour at NPR.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. That's at TedRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're still looking for another great NPR podcast, check out Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Fresh Air interviews are a great way to get to know people like Jon Stewart, Larry David, Amy Poehler, Louis C.K., Michael Keaton. I can go on and on and on. You can find Fresh Air's podcast at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app.